Would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 20? At least have that open. Uh, We won't read it for a moment. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be looking at uh, a subject with me, anyway, over the summer. We're going to look at something I'm calling fundamentals, and we're going to look at the Ten Commandments. We're going to do one uh, uh, each Sunday morning. It won't be uh, consecutive. There'll be others preaching and other things going on. Rob's preaching next week, Rob Golding. And, and so, you know, there'll be plenty of variety. But each one of these talks, I feel, has to some extent a, 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 a self-contained subject. And therefore, over the summer period, it's not an inappropriate way to preach, rather than starting a subject where you miss out whole sections. I believe it's a very important series I'm looking at the Ten Commandments and I'll explain how I'm doing it in a few moments. I'm not treating it as a legalistic thing. I think you know that would be the furthest thing from my heart. But I do actually feel that it will be a very useful fundamental basis for understanding what God expects in a Christian's life and what God is saying to men and women today. And I want us to to really get excited about these fundamentals of God. I want them to be pastorally applicable to our lives, but I want them to stimulate evangelism. I want us to be clear about the fundamental things that God says to mankind, really, and to us as well. Because, by way of introduction, I want to talk for a few minutes. I think in the last 20 or 30 years, in this country, and it's in this country I feel the absolute essential nature of this sort of subject... In this country, we've bought a privatisation package that beats all others. We've had privatisation since the 1980s, you know, privatising everything, and you know about that. But I think the biggest privatisation is the privatisation of religion and morals. We have been completely convinced as a culture, and sold over the last 20 or 30 years particularly, that religion and morality is a thing for private personal preference. You cannot impose on others what you believe. You can't apply the standards you believe God's given for uh, the other people of other cultures and religions, for other people in the nation for other people, certainly internationally. These things are private matters. It's inappropriate, irrelevant even, even, to the public arena. God has been relegated to just your personal faith. That's fine. My faith, my beliefs, my experience. It's almost now indecent to try and impose your faith, your beliefs on other people. To try to apply... God's ways to politics, to work, to social needs, to law and order, to family life is almost considered, as I say, rather rude and an affront. But I'm, I'm determined we don't get backed into that corner. That is nonsense and we'll see why as we go through these few weeks. We're told that the paramount virtues in our day and age are tolerance and personal choice. So really, they're the big ones. Tolerance and personal choice. And even as I speak about this, some of you may be thinking, even some of you Christians, that's not such a bad thing, is it, John? But I tell you, it's not what it's about. They are not the fundamentals. Tolerance and personal choice. It's now considered the ultimate goal to be free to be yourself. Surely that's what we all attain to. I want to be free to be myself. And if I'm challenged, my ultimate defence is, well, it's my choice. 
My ultimate defence, you can't answer that. That's what I choose to do. That's my choice. Now, actually, we're going to see these things are very shaky. They are not the foundations for moral life, for social life, for culture, nor for our own personal relationship with God. We're going to see a lot of things that God says that do clash with what our politically correct world would teach us. You see, these things, these sort of trends are rooted, actually they're not just accidental, they're rooted in a long-term policy of moral relativism. That everything is relative. And behind that, in our culture, and I am very much thinking of modern Britain, where we live, even if you're from another culture, you're living in our nation at the moment, and you need to know the spirit of our age. There is a very deep sort of soaking, if I can put it that way, in this moral relativism which has gone on for decades and there is almost a dictum behind everything that there are no absolutes. The dictum is there are no absolutes. That's why you can pick a mix. That's why it's personal choice. There are no absolutes. Now, the first thing to say is that dictum itself is arrogant, actually, and is, in fact, nonsense. So it's arrogant nonsense. Because what's actually said is there is an absolute truth. There is an absolute truth. And it's this, that there are no absolute truths. Now, actually, it's arrogant because people from our culture, our Western sort of culture, now would look out across the world and say, we've got to get them all to see that there's no absolute truth. We've got to get the, uh, the, uh, the Muslim and the, uh, you know, and the international affairs must understand there is an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe in absolute truth and it's a different one from that. It's that there is a God and he has a lot to say to men and women today. Now, of course, this whole teaching, if we can call it that, this whole attitude is very popular Many people don't understand it philosophically probably, but it is popular when it boils down to things like tolerance and personal choice and it's my choice and, you know, and all that sort of thing and I'm free to be myself. The reason it's popular, of course, is that it's easy and convenient. What it really boils down to is you can do what you like. You can do your own thing and not only be allowed to do it, but it's a virtue. It's something you can promote. Well, it's just me. It's what I want to do. Oh, that's great. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, And so suddenly something that is maybe once upon a time something you would furtively do or maybe you'd want to do, now not only can you do it, but that is a good, 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 good thing. So of course it's possible, uh, it's, it's pro- it's, um, of course it's uh, popular to have a teaching like this where everything is about tolerance, as long as you let me do what I like, I'll let you do what you like. But the whole thing is a dangerous delusion. It is a very dangerous delusion at a number of levels, of which I haven't time really to go into. But there are, just flag them up. The big one, and well, that's one we will look at, is it's a dangerous delusion because it's not the truth and God doesn't operate that way. And we need to know the truth. But actually it's a dangerous delusion just by common sense, frankly. Because living like that is just an idealistic poppycock. What you do affects me. What people do deeply affects other people. And in actual fact, the taking off, for example, of restraint in the area of sexual morality over the last 20, 30 years, 40 years, the whole promiscuity thing mixed in with the social change of breakdown of family life and, you know, uh, uh, undermining of marriage has huge impacts on everybody. 
What people do on their own privately in their homes does affect everybody else. What consenting adults do privately shouldn't be any business. But it, it does. It affects everything. It affects how children behave. It affects how life is. It affects the costs of our very nation. We all pay for it literally sometimes through our taxes. It's nonsense to say I can privately do what I like and it doesn't affect anybody else. So at a lot of levels, it's dangerous delusion. But the most important one is, of course, because of what God says and because of its impact on our relationship with him. Now, unfortunately, Christians can be affected by this as well because we do live and swim, as it were, in the, in the culture around us. The, the moral fog around us affects us. And you do find the spirit of the age amongst us. And I think we all can find it affects us. It would be rather remarkable, perhaps, if we didn't have battles with it. So in many of our Christian circles and churches, we are very me-centred. We're very, very needs-driven. We have quite a therapeutic approach to faith and teaching. Now, there's, there's values in some of that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be aware of people's needs. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a therapeutic angle. But it's become very dominant. And we're often much more concerned about me and my needs than what is right and wrong. And what is God saying is right, and I do, even if I feel really uncomfortable and painful about it, I do the right thing. We don't just need to find what, what makes me feel good and what is good for me. Now that can, as I say, permeate. We need to get us some balance back on that. I trust God will help us. If we abandon biblical truth, if we abandon God's way of doing things, we have nothing to offer to our nation and to the people around us. If we abandon a biblical worldview... We lose it all. We might have a form of revival and it will all drift into the sand, drip into the sand. We might have uh, people coming to get saved and they'll get experience of God, but if we haven't got a biblical view of how to view the world and their lives, that will soon be apparently superficial. We need to understand the language of absolute truth. We need to understand that there are things that are very right and things that are very wrong. And God has got things to say to us about it. We need to rediscover that. So I'm going to look at the Ten Commandments with you over these next couple of months through to September when I'm preaching. I'm going to base it in Exodus 20. I'm not going to... Uh, I'm just basically going to do one a week. Um, but it's going to be based in Exodus 20. just want to, you to, to open that and I'm going to read the Ten Commandments. And then we're going to begin to look at the first one. So I'm just going to read verses 1 to 17 as it happens. Not just the first three verses. And God spoke all these words... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord your, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant, maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or his maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Now, we're going to come back to all of those and we're going to say, how are they relevant to us? What's God saying to us out of those? But I want to just highlight three things that are generally true about the commandments, which in a sense we will keep revisiting. Three general sort of points. First of all, the Ten Commandments are the Maker's instructions. They are things that God has said and God made us. We'll look at that a bit this morning because it's sort of this morning's subject. And actually, he does know what works. If we were, if we were able to keep these commandments and live by them, life would be massively better, massively easier and loads cheaper. Sin costs billions and billions of pounds. Simply, live it, simply to apply properly some of, these, uh, some of these commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not uh, murder, you should not covet, etc., would actually radically improve life for every single human being. So let's have no doubt about it. Instead of coming at them as a heavy thing, let's realise they're for the blessing of people. At one level, God gave them as the way to live, the way to survive and enjoy life, as a human being, as I say, the maker's instructions. And even at that level, they give guidelines on how to restrain evil. They don't solve evil, but they give guidelines on how to make it a little better. If you do have a society which respects these principles, life is generally going to be safer and securer. They will do us good even at that level, because they are wise and they are the maker's wisdom for us. Okay, another thing about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments show us what is wrong with us. And to some extent, that's their big challenge, and it's a good one. And we take it on the chin, because it leads to health and life in the end. You see, actually, if there was nothing wrong with men and women, it would be no big deal to keep the Ten Commandments. Adam and Eve would hardly have thought twice about keeping the Ten Commandments. It it is the natural thing to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and with all your soul, which is actually the Deuteronomy version, by the way, for for, for the first verse. But, um, but, you know, that's how Adam and Eve lived. Now, when we hear it, we think, oh, nobody can do that. But okay, but actually, if it wasn't that we were sinners, it would be no issue. And in actual fact, the Ten Commandments primarily have a major challenge to every one of us. There is something wrong with us. The fact we look at that list, and probably most of us can say, well, I I do keep one or two, but I think right across this room, uh, probably most of us think, well, I'd struggle to, you know, I don't know what you think about the others, but when you get to coveting, I don't think that, there's many of us that don't live uh, without coveting. And, and our whole society is based on it, but that's uh, for 10 weeks' time. But, but actually, we need, to, we need to understand that there's a reason that. God isn't just going to leave us in condemnation, and I'm not going to leave you there. But he is challenging us that there's something hugely wrong. Someone said they're like a plumb line. Ten commandments like a plumb line. You know, weight on a string, and if you hold it against a wall or something, you can see how crooked the wall is, because the plumb line is straight, And although your eye can sometimes deceive you, it doesn't deceive, and you say, wow, that is crooked. 
or, or a level. You know, we use these things that are like a standard that show, well, that isn't level at all. That's not straight at all. Now, actually, this is one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments. It drives us to Christ, to use the New Testament. It makes us realise we need saving. There is something very wrong with us. We are sinners. And the Ten Commandments helps us to see how much we're twisted by sin. And we need forgiving and saving. We need a radical solution. We need a solution that isn't just polishing the outside, where the Ten Commandments is misapplied sometimes, as though you could just obey them and then be everything be all right. That if you treat them seriously, you realise you can't do this yourself. You need a radical solution. You need something that changes you on the inside. And God's provided it through Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. In the New Testament, they drive us to Christ and to having forgiveness and change and becoming a new creation. And therefore you can go on and say, to, for us as Christians, they often have a third application. The Ten Commandments illustrate the sort of life that the Holy Spirit will produce in the Christian. They are a broad summary of what will be produced when you walk in the Spirit. That actually... When you are a Christian, you will begin to be able to actually fulfil some of these things. Without overstretching it, we can turn the commandments almost into faith promises. That if you walk in the Spirit, you will not commit adultery. You will not be stealing. You will not be lying. When you walk in the Spirit, you will be able to rise above coveting. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. These are the righteous things that the Spirit of God will draw us into. Romans 8 verse 4 says this, Through Jesus Christ's death, God condemned sin in sinful man, listen to this, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the righteous requirements, the righteous living that the law is after and could never achieve by law, we can't achieve it, that righteous living can be achieved, can begin to appear by the inner working of the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit changes you to be able to love your enemies, you're not probably going to end up murdering them. And if, if you begin to be turned into a generous giving person, you won't be a thief and stealing. And actually, he's going to teach you to speak the truth in love. He's going to teach you to be... Uh, as it were, putting Christ first in all things and, and content with whatever state you're in so that you're no longer locked into coveting. So actually, the Holy Spirit produces something pretty well lined up with the life that God laid down as being the way to live as a righteous person. So let's pick up these ancient, powerful statements. I love them. I think it's a bit like, a, it's a bit like looking at some beautiful sword that's razor sharp and heavy and ancient and you feel, we need to look at this and it's a bit scary. Wow, imagine being hit with that. You know, and, and I think you, 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 you look at it and, you, and it's like suddenly God comes on the scene and says, well, this is what I think. This is what I say, not what I think. This is the truth. Now listen to this. And the first one is in verses 1 to 3. It's back up on your screen. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It's quite straight, isn't it? And actually, if you wanted to flesh it out, it wouldn't be difficult. You could read the Deuteronomy 6 version. You could pick up other bits in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to look at something Jesus said based on this later too, briefly. And basically it's saying there is one God, 
There is one creator and you are to love him with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. He should come first in your life and he will not tolerate any other gods. In actual fact, this, this commandment and the first four are the ones people never like to talk about much. I, I'm, I, some of you remember this. Towards the end of John Major, when John Major was Prime Minister, he had a back to basics sort of idea. And, it, and I remember poor man, he was trying to sort of help the country and he, he was talking about the Ten Commandments at one time. And quite often you get those sort of periodic periods where people say, oh, if only we got back to the Ten Commandments. Well, what they usually don't mean is the first four. They usually mean the next, the last six. And they usually mean them as sort of good suggestions. They're not really talking about commandments from God and they usually ignore them. These are slightly embarrassing. People feel uncomfortable with these first commandments. They feel uncomfortable with this one. You shall have no other gods besides me. Could be besides or before as your margin will tell you. You will have no other gods. You shall have no other gods besides me. We, we feel uncomfortable. We think, well, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that divisive? Shouldn't religion be tolerant and all-inclusive? Now, you would see that as a normal, politically correct attitude that would be nod about, nodded sagely about on our media or indeed in the chattering classes or indeed in most normal settings outside of Christian uh, and other faith settings. People would not say, oh, shouldn't all religions should be tolerant and all-inclusive? We're looking today, often generally, and told to look for a sort of common denominator faith. Our dear heir to the throne seems to be rather drifting this way. Prince Charles, you know, there's some common denominator thing where you take together all the blandest ingredients of the great world religions and make one sort of lovely, warm, cosy feel that, you know, there's much to learn from Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Christianity and Judaism and somehow there's lots in common and let's make one common denominator faith out of it. I'll tell you this, the Bible has absolutely no time for that. Absolutely no time for it. And I think even so-called Christians who dabble in it are doing something very dangerous. I have no time for multi-faith services. I think they are probably bordering on blasphemy. You just cannot mess about with God. What are we doing? There is one God, the Lord our God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah. The God who released Israel from Exodus. The God whose son, Jesus Christ, died and rose again. We have another marker in our history, which is different from Exodus. We have the marker of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that is the God who we worship. And that is the only creator God there is. And all other gods are false gods. And we've got to be careful that we don't try and mix it up. Now, another fallacy is that somehow this common denominator thing is so modern. It's postmodern. It's 21st century. It's as old as the hills, you twit. It's as old as the hills. The whole reason these Ten Commandments are given because of that problem. Egypt was full of gods. Egypt was full of all sorts of gods. And provided you mix in with the whole lot, you'd be probably tolerated. Cana, where they were just about to go, oh, Cana was full of all sorts of gods. And the big problem and they fell for it several times, was that Jehovah would be just like one of the other gods. So you have Baal, and you have Ashtaroth, and you have Jehovah. And it's all, you know, okay, you mix it all together. That was the problem 4,000 years ago. It was the problem which the early church had to contend with. 
It was what brought them into conflict. They never looked for conflict, no more than we do. We don't look for trouble. But what brought them into trouble was simply this. The Romans had an attitude, a worldview, which they were determined to keep to and impose on others. That's it. All gods will tolerate. All gods can be tolerated, provided you understand that the overall arching umbrella is the emperor god. So the emperor is God. The benign emperor, the emperor there, he's over everything. And you can worship your little Yahweh, you can worship your Jesus Christ, you can worship this, that and the other, provided you acknowledge that they're all just equally, avail- equally okay under the umbrella of the emperor who is actually the one you need to burn incense to every so often and worship the emperor. And the Christians just would not play ball. They said, there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's only one God. And some of, many thousands of them died. And that's what they died for, was simply saying that. Saying, not saying, I want to cause any trouble, I just, I can't compromise it. There is one God, and there's one Lord. And that's, that's all they were saying. Nobody was looking for trouble at all. It's as old as the hills. This problem is as old as the hills. It's a demonic strategy that is used again and again used to undermine confidence in God, used to undermine the truth, and used to back God's people into a sort of mishmash corner, where that's it, you're over there with all the other religious nuts. Well, I mean, actually, I think the Roman situation is remarkably parallel. Probably the first century church was facing things that that are not at all, in some ways, dissimilar from what we're growing into in our day, where there's this overarching plurality, and but please don't rock the boat and don't impose what you believe. Just keep happy in your corner and you'll be okay. And actually, you just can't do it. Two powerful truths come through from this commandment. We haven't got a clock yet. We will get one one day. Two powerful truths come through from this commandment. I do want to just... I want to shout them out today, okay? (laughs) Okay, here's the first one. There is only one God. That's one. That's it. One supreme sovereign creator. The God of the Bible. The Bible starts there all the time. It starts with that at the beginning of the Bible. First book, first sentence. In the beginning, God. Okay? In the beginning, God. Now, that is the answer to all philosophical questions and difficulties. God began it all. Behind it all is God. The Bible is full of many clear, repeated statements of this. It's hundreds of them. God is the creator and sustainer of everything. We are all in his hands. Just look at a quick range, not too quick, just long enough to read them. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, He founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. (laughs) Look at Acts 17. Let's go to the New Testament. We're going to hop about. Acts 17. Paul's preaching, God did did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. We ought to look at that in a minute. He's not a watchmaker God. He's not uninterested or uninvolved. He's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And then he refers to, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Then in Ephesians 4 verse 6, One God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Amen? Amen. Isaiah 43.10, look at that. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, speaking to God's people, Israel. 
and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God wants you, his people, first of all, to know, believe and understand that I am he. What a way of putting it. Who is the he behind it all? I am. (laughs) I am he. (laughs) I'm the one. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. That's good, isn't it? The beginning and the end. The first and the last, as the next verse says. Isaiah 44, 6. This is what the Lord says. Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And this is what I mean about a heavy sword of God's word. Apart from me, there is no God. There's God. And it's great. I love it. It gives me tingles up the spine. But apart from me, there's no God. Now, we, in our, we've got to apply this in our culture. Because we, we, we're in this battleground, folks. This is battleground. We live in modern Britain, in, in 21st century Britain, in a general attitude of sort of mild atheism. Atheism and humanism. There's a background hiss... I don't know how to describe it. Background buzz, which is essentially towards atheism and humanism. It's in the media. It's in the comments. It's in the, it's in the intellectual writings. It's in the general assumptions made, the politically correct assumptions. And, it, it, you know, it comes sometimes out really harshly in a Stephen Hawkins book when everybody gets popular with that, The God Delusion, and, and, and talks about it. But it's there in the sort of intellectual mindset of much of our nation. There is a background of that. And when you start talking to people, they will often sort of, although they're not atheistic themselves, they'll often have those sort of arguments. They've almost been educated into them. So you get this trite little question, have you ever heard this? Well, if God made the universe, who made God? You ever had that said to you? I've had that said to me many times, especially when I was teaching uh, RS, and I've had it said to me in many a context. People don't always say it nastily. And actually, it is said by some of the so-called intellectuals. Stephen Hawkins will say that. Bertrand Russell said it. If God made the universe, who made God? Well, let's give that a couple of minutes' thought, because I want to this morning, because that's sometimes the reality uh, of what we're dealing with. It is actually a very feeble way of responding, and we need to be clear in our thinking and not on the back foot. I want you to know that today, right today, 2007, general discoveries in science have come to a very confident conviction that the universe had a beginning. We're talking big stuff. I'm not worrying about the time scales at the moment. There is a major view, scientifically supported, that the universe had a beginning. Sometimes this is called the Big Bang. Now, this in itself has created many problems for atheistically minded scientists and philosophers. I don't know if you realise that for many centuries the atheistically minded people were confident that the universe was a steady state. It had always been there. It was eternal. When I did astronomy at university as a subsid science in the late 60s and early 70s, the steady state theory was still put alongside the Big Bang theory. But in actual fact, the Big Bang is now the, the well-tested and supported one, that there is clearly a beginning to the universe. That's important. I'll show you why in a moment. Even atheistically minded scientists struggle with that. Let me quote something. Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg said that the now rejected steady state theory 
is philosophically the most attractive theory because it least resembles the account given in Genesis. So he would say, this has created a problem for us. All the evidence is that the universe started and the evidence points towards it started from nothing. (laughs) Okay? Now, in the light of that, some very intelligent people very intelligent by this world's standards, claim that the universe came into existence uncaused out of nothing. People actually claim that. It came into existence uncaused out of nothing. But that actually defies the basic truth of reality. How can something be produced when absolutely no potentiality exists for its emergence? It just... just Okay, if the words are bugging your mind, just think in, in practical terms. You hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, absolutely nothing at all, it just happened. Now, you, you'd not accept that. You'd find my reply almost unintelligible. Well, if that's true for a little bang, why isn't it true for a big bang? And I... I mean, there's some fundamental stuff here. Now, let's, let's take that on board as we think about this who made God business. The issue is not that everything must have a cause. It's this. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. They're not the same thing. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. And actually, the atheists have been hoist with their own petard. For many, many years, maybe even centuries, atheistically minded philosophers and scientists said that the universe was eternally subsistent. It it did not have a beginning and it did not need one. That's what they used to argue. They would argue that the universe was self-explanatory. And that would have been quite a widely held view until about 50 years ago, when the evidence increasingly built up and has done over 50 years that the universe had a beginning. And suddenly, nothing can be self-explanatory. Oh, yes, it can. God can be self-explanatory. We just flick the same philosophical argument over, only the answer is God. It's like you've got a boxing match, and it's God versus the universe. Which one is the prime cause? Which one is the self-explanatory cause? Well, we've knocked the universe right out the ring. It clearly had a beginning. So the thing that doesn't have a beginning, if I can put it that way, the person who doesn't have a beginning, is God. That's all. We transfer the correct arguments to God. God has no beginning. And of course the Bible, written thousands of years ago, keeps telling us, I am the first and the last. Before me there was no God. I am the beginning and the end. God said, it all stops with me. I didn't start anywhere. I don't need a cause because I don't have a beginning. I am the cause of everything else that does have a beginning, including the whole universe you live in. Anything that has a beginning, I caused. God is the prime cause behind everything. And actually, we can rejoice in that. It takes today, now, it takes a great leap of faith to be an atheist, actually. Dallas Willard put it this way. The fact is, an eternally self-subsistent being is more probable, that's God, eternally self-subsistent being is more probable than a self-subsistent event emerging from no cause. Which is absolutely right. And let's think of it like this. The Bible has always said it, and it's right. Isaiah 44, verse 24. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth, 
by myself. Just let, that's the word of God. Just let it sink in for a moment. Isaiah 44, 24. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. God, one God, one creator. Second powerful truth is this. God intervenes in human history. Now that's in our actual um, commandment. Look at verse 2. Exodus 2, it's going to go on the screen I think. 20 verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And this is really exciting and it really should focus us. The God we worship, the Lord our God, is not a distant watchmaker God. He didn't wind things up and just leave them to tick over. He involves himself in human history. He is a God who is an interventionist God. He's always intervening. He has ways of sovereignly setting things in motion, but he is not then distant from them. He is actively involved in them. Now here... In this context of Exodus 20, the focus of that is the deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus. There are other major events in the Old Testament that could have been mentioned, like the flood with Noah or Abraham, things said to Abraham. But rightly, in its context here, with Israel's birth out from Egypt, the focus, and it's a big important focus for the Old Testament, is the deliverance from Egypt. But one of the big focuses for us, which overshadows that, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the deliverance from sin and bondage to slavery to sin the deliverance from judgement that came through Jesus Christ so the, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus are a huge intervention that we look back to with great joy we recognise that Egypt's deliver, um, sorry, Israel's deliverance from Egypt was a, a major intervention one of many but the one that perhaps fills our view is what happened when Jesus Christ came to earth and died and rose again And set us free. And all of these things tell us that God is for us and is intervening. The God who made this world is still active in it. He's revealing himself and he's acting in history. Not merely the big events, though of course they are the major ones, but in your history and my history, God is there. He wants you to know him. He acts in the midst of our sin-sick world to bring deliverance. He did it here, he did it in the cross and the resurrection and he's still doing it individually for you. God is a God who not only made everything but he's also a God who's interested in you and me and he's big enough to be able to do that. If he's the God who's before all things you know, I stretched out the heavens on my own <laughs> you know, he's a God who can know you he's, you know, you can, you can have a a, a, a real interest in something so you build some wonderful machine one of you clever guys who's good at that so, well you will know everything about that machine I mean this is just a silly illustration you, you're not in, once you've done it all you know all about it if you built it now that's I'm talking about God it's not difficult for God to know you he's God he knows the hairs on your head he's, he's big enough to know you and he wants to know you he's intervening now our relationship with God, and this is what I want to say in these last few minutes, our relationship with this God is the fundamental factor in our lives. And this applies to men and women, whoever you are. If you're not a Christian, the fundamental thing is to get right with God and get him as God and Lord of your life. If you are a Christian, the fundamental thing is to get the Lord your God as the focus of your life. And loving him and serving him is the, is the foundation of everything else. Let's look at when Jesus quoted this 
particular commandment. He quoted it from Deuteronomy 6. Here it is in Mark 12, verses 29 to 30. Jesus said, look, it's so simple, the most important one. He's talking about the commands. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And that is just like, okay, that's it. Jesus is saying, this is the most important. You need to get to know God. You need to love him. You need in relationship with God. That's fundamental to everything else. Now, as all the commandments have, it has a sort of double-sided element to it. Sort of, sort of two-edged thing. First of all, when you read that, we'll leave it on the screen for a moment. Uh, can we go back to the Mark 12? Sorry, I don't know if you can do that. Let's leave that up for a moment. First of all, when you look at that, and when you see that, you should and could say, I, I can't do this. Just look at it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Say, I can't do that. I can't do that. Who could do that? And I would say the same. Who could do that? Well, then it's having its first effect. There's something wrong with you then, isn't there? You're alienated from God. You're a sinner. You need to be reconciled to God. You say, how could I love the Lord my God? Like, Well, that is part of the problem. And it's the beginning is telling us the root of the problem, the first commandment. Our major problem as men and women, whoever we are, is we are out of kilter with God. We are out of relationship with our God and Father, with the creator of the earth. We don't know him. We can't love him. There's a huge cloud of sin between us and him. We need to be reconciled to God. That's the first thing we need. And praise God, Jesus has come to do that. The the fundamental thing Jesus does for us is reconcile us to God. We have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. Peace with God. Now, sometimes we can get very interested in all the other things, how it affects me, how it blesses me. Look, the big thing is you have peace with God. The big thing is I don't care how you feel, you can be reconciled to God. So, oh, God hasn't healed my ache and pain. I thought he might have healed me. I'd love him to heal you. But actually, the big thing is you're reconciled to God. You can know him as your father in heaven. All those terrific problems, your sins, that have been removed and the door is open, you boldly and cleanly and clearly can come into his presence, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You can know the Lord your God and love him and know he loves you. That is the most important thing, isn't it? And now we rejoice in it, reconciled to God. Now out from that, It's got another direction, as I say. It's telling us that the most important thing is we live out this truth. This truth in this verse. Not as a commandment, but as a fruit of our reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, the most important thing is we love God. Love him. You know, that's what the rest comes out of. You have great difficulty loving other Christians. You'll have great difficulty loving the world. You have great difficulty doing all sorts of things. You think, oh, I should do this and she should do that. Look, God said, he's already given us the key. It's rooted in love. I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods before me. And love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So, well, but it's still hard to do. Yeah, of course. But the Holy Spirit is drawing you that way. He's saying, I want to love you. I want you to love me. First of all, I want you to love me. That's, get that right. Get that, get that, get, that's the most important thing. Come, come this way. Come this, like a father with a child. Walk this way. Now, love me first. Oh, I want to do this. I can't do that. No, no, don't. Come and love me. Come on, love me. Put me first. Put me first. That's what God's saying. 
Now actually that is not heavy, that is releasing. And as Christians we still have the battle to do that right. There's always a tendency to put other things first in our lives. Whether it's, I don't know, even religious ideas sometimes and church things. Sometimes it's fame or position if you like. We want to be top dog. Sometimes it's money, career, sports, celebrities, pleasures, family, friends, food, drink, drugs. Even Christians, we can put other things first. But Matthew Henry, now I would like Matthew Henry on the screen. Matthew Henry sums this up very well. Uh, And just a quote there. Whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on, more than God, that, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. Can we leave that up? Because that's a challenge for us. That's written to Christians, and rightly so. We have to learn that the key to being a successful Christian, to enjoying your life as a Christian, is in a sense to follow the principles of the Ten Commandments. This principle, that first and most important is your relationship with God. Get him right, love him, let him have no rivals in your heart, and other things will begin to line up from that. And the other things that can get in the way are, as Matthew Henry puts it, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared, can be fears, or served, delighted in or depended on, more than God, whatever it is that in effect you're making a God of. And as Christians, we will not achieve what we're called to do if we don't keep ourselves in the love of God within the boundaries of the love of God, as it says in Jude. Keep ourselves centred on God. It is all about him. And my love for him is paramount above everything else. Now, I struggle with this like you do. I, I can struggle with just the busyness of my life, just the struggles of running a church or running a region, as it's been recently. And all the stuff goes off and, you, and some of it under... And you think, Lord, it's all in the end. If I'm not loving you and serving you, it's all a waste of time. Because the first commandment is the most important one. The Lord your God is one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Don't try and fit God into some collage of your life. Cut him out and paste him in in one little section. That's not going to work. He's not a toy God just to give you comfort when you're a bit stressed. That's not going to work either. He will not cohabit with anything. He's not there just to promote your ventures and your comforts. Oh God, help me to do what I want to do. That isn't the way to use him. That's not how it works. <laughs> That's not how it works. We fit into his, his picture. He doesn't fit into our picture. We fit into his picture. Do you know what I mean? That the Lord our God, first of all, above all things. He speaks to us today as we close and says, Hear my people. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods besides me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. That's a composite of the two or three really, just adapted to our day and age. Amen?